Thank you for tuning in to CIO Speaks with host Steve Ginsberg. If you enjoy this episode, please check out the other episodes in this series and go to gigaohm.com to find more of Steve's research and insights. Hi, I'm Steve Ginsberg. My guest today is Joanna Young, an experienced C-suite exec with deep experience providing digital leadership and guidance to executives, teams, and individuals. In this episode, we'll hear Joanna's insights specifically in organizational efficiency and culture. Hi, Joanna. Thanks for joining me today. Great to be here. You've been working with a lot of organizations. You want to tell us a little bit what you're working on currently? Yeah, sure. So I'm working with several organizations on large, complex programs. Most of them have some aspect of agile transformation and also related to moving from more legacy architectures and applications to cloud or hybrid or or hosted sort of architectures. That's great. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about project management and program management, et cetera. Uh, In your view, what do the project management methodologies bring to the table? Well, I think when I think about project management today, I think rather broadly. I think, you know, all the way from, if you will, more the more traditional uh, PMP type of methodologies to, you know, the more agile lean types of methodologies that are, are being deployed. And I think what, what, they, what they bring to the table is, is really these days the ability to create a minimum viable construct that is going to deliver value as quickly as possible. And I think if people are thinking about project management, whether it's agile or traditional waterfall, that way that it needs to be the most lightweight approach possible to get the team or teams to the point that they're delivering quickly and accurately, then everybody will be a lot better off. You know, project management is not for the project managers. It's not for managers. It's not for leadership. It's for the teams. It's to support the teams. Yeah, I like uh, your emphasis on lightweight, having come from waterfall shops and then moved into agile. It it certainly seems like for a lot of projects, uh, it's a better way to go. Um, How do you feel about uh, communicating the folks, as you said, it's not for project managers only, that's not the goal, uh, about bringing in the, the partners that you're working with on projects into these methodologies? Well, though, the I think the hardest thing for organizations to get their heads around is that these methodologies, again, are not, they're not for leaders, they're not, they're not for the managers, they're not for the project managers, they're, they're for the teams. And it really, the as I'm bringing different stakeholders together, the, the really the biggest thing is, is change management and getting people to think differently about how this should be supporting, supporting delivery and supporting delivery faster and faster and with higher and higher degrees of quality. You know, a good example is that, you know, we're, we're used to, and even when I was at CIO, some years back, I was used to getting sort of that weekly or monthly or quarterly sort of red, yellow, green stoplight, you know, what's going on with all of the projects. And it's it, it's things like that, like people's expectations about a lot of the effort going into the plans and the statusing. People need to, to 
realize that that is of lower value than the actual than the actual delivery and really sort of change their minds about what they're looking for if you will in terms of metrics and critical success factors in the projects for, you know for example you know a team that's firing in all cylinders and delivering more faster and faster to ever happier customers, whether those customers are internal or external. That's the sort of things these people should be looking for and thinking about, not, you know, stoplight reports. Right. It's the result, not the reporting. Right. But still, there's so much focus on um, reporting. And then the other thing I find is that people still get um, extremely, if you will, wrapped around the axle about resource assignments one of the things that I'm often dealing with in terms of change management is the concept that one of the um, negative aspects of an organization is the amount of time they spend slicing and dicing people amongst amongst projects. That's that's non-value added time and 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 wasted time. And so moving moving people away from that slicing and dicing and focusing on fully resourcing the teams on the projects that are of the highest priority. I saw you've done some nice uh, writing on resourcing and that the planning doesn't necessarily produce any more resources and that one should commit, organizations should commit to resourcing properly those priority projects. Exactly. I mean, I, you know, I'm working on real time, real life projects where I mean, it's, you know, I think it's, you know, very obvious, but everybody is coming from a different place. So just because I think it's obvious don't doesn't mean that other people do. But, you know, we're, we're seeing teams that are, you know, producing, you know, incredible amounts of value in, you know, two weeks sprints, most, most usually, and then other then other teams that aren't and are really struggling to get any sort of um, velocity or demonstrably higher quality. And the 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 largest differentiator with, between teams at at you know in both of those spectrums is that the Philly resource team, you know, with the developers, with the product owners, with the BAs and the QA function, the Philly resource teams are just simply so much better positioned than the teams that are not fully resourced and that have people sliced and diced between projects are just simply not going to produce. And um, I think it's harder for some organizations to get out of that mindset um, than, than others. So, you know, just understanding where organizations are standing, going to where they're standing, trying to, you know, help them move move forward at a, at a reasonable speed to a to a better place, if you will. How do you advise that organizations should balance the kind of always on dynamic nature of business? Uh, for example, uh, a year or a quarter might be well planned at first. Uh, and then depending on how dynamic the business is, there are often new asks coming in. Yeah, so you know, my, my thinking these days, what I believe works best for most organizations is that um, they should be planning extremely high level uh, for maybe let's call it 12 to eight, 18 months. And then, you know, in the six to nine month level or six to 12 month level, maybe at a mid level of planning and then really only detailed level of planning and what I would call, 
you know, a quarter or two, um, three to six months. And then, of course, when you're talking about, you know, these newer agile and lean constructs, you're even getting to a more granular level of detail with backlog refinement and assigning things to sprints and, and what have you. Um, when I see an organization who's still trying to plan in that, you know, beyond, you know, 12 to 18 months, like these two, three, five-year um, horizons, and they're spending a lot of time on that, that usually is what I call a leading indicator of, you know, perhaps they're not focused appropriately on the right things. That makes a lot of sense. In your view, do the planning tools themselves matter much, or is it as long as an organization is comfortable with the tools, they seem kind of similar, or do you feel like there's a, a vast difference in terms of what can be gained there? I, I don't think the the top tools. We all know, you know who you know who they are. You know, my, you know Microsoft Teams or um, the Atlassian suite of of, of products. Um, I don't think you know that if you will the top tier tools. There's a, a you know a ton of difference. It's it's like any it's like anything else. It's all about um, the process, um, the culture. Are people in the right roles at the right time? So, you know, does leadership have you know the right uh, you know, mindset are, you know, are they, are they supporting teams appropriately? Those things are far, far more impo- important. That being, you know, that being said, you know, a badly implemented tool is, you know, going to impede that. So you know, I more often look to like, okay, what are the tools you're using? And, you, you know, are they, are they helping you or are they impeding you? And if they're helping them, you know, let's sort of put the tool question aside and, and focus on other things. If they, if I'm seeing some signs that the tools are impediments, then, you know, we might put that near the top in terms of things to address. Sure. And, and what about the human element? For example, you, you've written about hubris and uh, humility. How should uh, IT organizations view those and the other kind of top qualities of the people on the teams? Well, I think servant leadership is, you know, is de- is definitely key. You know, nobody is getting work. Very few people, I guess, are getting work done themselves. They're getting work done with and through other people, and that's particularly acute, um, you know, for leaders. You know, I one of the leading indicators of or lead lagging indicators of success that I see are organizations where um, you know leaders truly care more about the teams. You know, than them, than themselves, and that you know that that tends to show up, if you will, in the full life cycle of talent. From you know the attention their you know the attention leaders pay to the you know the quality of the um, you know the the hiring and the onboarding process, all the way through you know if you will the the career building, whether it's you know compensations or promotions or you know giving people different valuable experiences. You know, all the way really to, um, you know, latter stage career and, you know, making sure people at all stages of their career are positioned appropriately to contribute. Leaders who realize the importance of talent and their role in supporting that talent, you know, those people are very valuable and organizations who are doing well, and you can even see this in, you know, organizations, if you will, at the the top of the leaderboard organizations who pay attention to that and who value leaders who pay attention to that tend to do better than than others. This is a topic, as you can tell, that I'm pretty passionate about because I think we've all seen very sad examples of leaders who have not sort of had this approach and attitude and what's happened to 
some of those organizations. How does that uh, manifest in your view in terms of communication specifically, kind of what leader style do you prefer in that regard, both what's effective and, and, and what you th- think is, is best for kind of all of the constituencies? Well, I think you want to look, you want to look, you know, for leaders that first of all have great communication skills. And that doesn't mean that they have to be, you know, massive extroverts or, or anything like that. But they're, they're people who are able to, you know, very quickly and expertly say, okay, this is, you know, this is the meeting, this is the situation, you know, this is the, this is, this is the, this is the conversation and be able to you know, adjust to the audience. I mean, when you're a leader, you know, if you're, um, you know, in the C-suite or in sort of VP or, you know, senior director type role, you've got to communicate from people all the way to, um, you know, boards, you know, potentially external customers, depending on your role, you know, all the way down to individual individual, um, contributors. And, you know, there's a lot. There's a lot that goes into that, and it's critically important. What, what I, what I think is important about leaders when I'm when you're thinking more about their organizations, is that, you know, I'm going to tell a little anecdote. I was listening to someone speak not that long ago, and it's someone who um, manages, you, you know, a, a, a mid-sized, the CIO of sort of a mid-sized company and, and supply chain is critically important to this enterprise. And they were talking about the fact that they had something, I believe that they called like the truck driver test. And that if they were able to walk into, if you will, one of their, um, you know, one of their locations and say to a truck driver, do you know what's, you know, going on with, you know, thus and such. And if that person was able to say, Oh yeah, I've heard about that. And, you know, that's important because, or that, you know, impacts the company because, and if they were able to articulate that, then that CEO was like, okay, I'm doing my job and the people sort of in between me and this truck driver are most likely doing their, their job as well. And I thought that was just such a super anecdote because it's it's so true. If leaders are able to foster either through their own words and actions, as well as those who work for them and around them, the types of words and actions so that you can get that level of engagement and understanding, you know, at the most far flung edges of the organizations, you're most likely doing something right. And also I thought it was cool that you know, here's someone, he's the CEO, and he's realizing it's important to engage and talk to someone who's, you know, sort of at the edge, you know, of, of the organization, if if you will. It's like uh, QA or monitoring for the quality of the process as well. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a quantitative and a qualitative aspect to this, right? It's art and it's science. As leaders, we have to know what the right metrics to look at. Um, you know, you can have thousands of metrics, but if most of them aren't the right ones, you're wasting a lot of time and, and energy in the, in the producing of them. And then there's this qualitative aspect that, you know, there's a lot of art too. And I think, um, you know, CIOs and CEOs and CFOs, you know, they should be looking for the equivalent of the quote unquote truck drivers in their organization and includes, including communication with those folks in their, in their yeah, quality assessment a, of how things are going. I think it's a great point on the, the effectives of, of the, uh, effectiveness of the metrics. In your view, what makes a good KPI? 
A good KPI is one that is, is closest to how the actual customers of your products are consuming, perceiving, net promoting your products. Those are the KPIs we should all be caring most, you know, most about. And those can range from the financial, right? I mean, you know, revenue numbers, that's obviously going to tell you something about the consumption and the perception of your products. But then, you know, again, there, there's metrics about, you know, how fast are new desirable features being um, you know, you know, added, and that gets to things like velocity and quality. But you, people need to figure out what are the KPIs that are really closest to the customer, and you need to make sure that everybody in the organization understands what those KPIs are, how they relate to their particular role and job, and. Also, I think it's particularly important, maybe more so for the the leaders and certainly the people involved in in the metrics and analytics themselves, is the source of those metrics. Um, If I had a nickel for every meeting that I've or interaction I've been in where somebody has said, oh, you know, this and so metric is at 75%, and, you know, you end up having, you know, a lengthy, sometimes difficult conversation on, well, you know, I, I don't believe that number and what's the source of that data and, you know, what's the time frame of the day? You know, there's the amount of time that we sort of spiral into conversations about the validity of, of certain um, metrics points out the importance of understanding the source of, of, of the data and making sure that people are, understand this is the source we're using, this is the formula we're using, and that's what we're looking at. And we're not going to you know, debate these things. We may have healthy conversations about altering something about that from you know, at periodic intervals, but we're not going to sit in rooms and argue about these things once the, once the sources and the formulas are set up. You've spent a lot of time talking about delivering value and delivering it quickly. Where are you on the concept of fail fast? Um, I'm I'm high on the concept of fail fast as as long as leaders understand what that means. Uh, you know that the you know the fail fast and the learn fast and and the role that that they play. Nothing will kill the benefits of fail fast sooner than any sort of you know public. Uh, or even, you know, semi-public, you know, wrist slapping for somebody who, you know, makes makes the mistake. And, you know, I'm, you know, we're not talking about, you know, deliberate mistakes or mistakes that are repeated over and over out of, out of carelessness, carelessness or the inability to collaborate effectively. You know, I'm talking about things like, hey, you know, we, you know, wanted to prioritize this feature in this application and, you know, work goes into delivering it and, you know, maybe the feature doesn't end up being that popular with the end end customers. Well, okay, well, there's a lot of learning there. You know, why wasn't it popular? Why did we think it was going to be, why did we think it was going to be popular? What is really the thing that they want? And let's get on that right away. And if leaders are having those sort of conversations when something doesn't go quite right, then, um, you know, that's good. Even in sort of dire situations where maybe there's a bad outage or whatever, you know, if a leader comes in and is like, hey, you know, let's first focus on get this, you know, res- resolved, but then after that, having, you know, good constructive conversations about, you know, what's happened, what can we learn from it, you know, how can we get better, um, you know, the value of that sort of, again, positive servant leadership 
is great. But if people are afraid to talk up, talk to speak up, if they're you know paranoid that they haven't made the right choice about the way to deliver a you know a feature, then you know that's just going to shut things down and you know slow velocity, impede quality, and you know you're obviously probably going to have a problem with your talent too because people these days really don't want to stay in organizations um, that aren't failing fast in a positive way. And for product organizations, understanding who the customer is should be somewhat straightforward. I mean, there's work that that should be done there, uh, of course, to refine. Uh, For CIO organizations, I know internally, it can be a struggle sometimes to even decide who are the customers and how they should be prioritized. Uh, How do you advise the CIO, especially in the idea of should they also be considering the the end customer of the organization as a whole? How do you advise organizations to go about creating a proper priority around all of that? Right. So um, obviously every organization is different. So it tends to be, if you will, N of one. But how how I would advise CIOs is uh, you know, look at your portfolio of products and services and make sure you understand who um, you know, the customers of that it, uh, that it, those things are, and make sure you understand, if you will, the layers of customers, right? Because to your point, it's not, you know, it can be a bit opaque or, 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 or murky. I mean, there are some, I mean, let's, let's take something um, fairly common, like, you know, the applications that support the various human resources processes, well, who's the customer of that? Well, yeah, it's the it's the human resources department. It's the chief human resources officer or whoever might be in a similar position. Um, but it's also the employees themselves, right? You know, is it you know are these is the is the HR application you know the one that's used for you know sort of employee ad move change type of thing? You know, is that creating friction in the organization so that employees feel sort of dragged down by things that they might have to do related to that system? System, or is it enabling the or the organization? And how does that manifest itself, you know, with the individual employees themselves, you know, managers and other um, leaders in the hierarchy? And, you, you know, what does all that mean? Well, that can be sort of difficult, you know, even that can be sort of difficult to tease out. And sometimes the HR department can really see that, like, we're the customers and, you know, we're the conduit and, you know, you need to be working solely with us. And then there are other organizations where HR is uh, what I would say more evolved, where they're like, okay, we understand that it's not all about us and it's really about the employee experience. And while we're, if you will, the stewards or, you know, the product owners, if you will, you know, we understand that it's important to get, you know, actual employee stakeholders involved outside of the HR department on things like onboarding and how the performance management process works. Yeah, certainly a lot to balance there. With that in mind, um, how do you advise uh, organizations to seek consensus when you have, you know, cross-organizational projects in which there are stakeholders throughout or at least in different parts of the enterprise? Yeah, so this again is is where every organization is, you know, is very different. Is is n is n of one, um, because consensus does not mean the same thing in all organizations. There are some organizations that you know are extremely hierarchical, you know, maybe almost um, 
you know, akin maybe to the military in command and, and control. And, you know, there's a few people at the top who make the decisions and, you know, that's that, you know, that's all the consensus that's, that, that's going to happen. And then there are other organizations that are very democratic and, and, you know, for example, academic institutions can be a lot like this and they want to get wide swaths of agreement um, before proceeding on things. And then there's sort of everything in between. So, you know, when, when I was talking to CAIOs, it's like, okay, you need to understand, particularly new CAIOs, you need to understand what does consensus even mean in your organization and make sure that you're, you know, talking to existing people in the organization who've been around for a while who can, can talk to you about that. And there's pros and cons at both ends of the spectrum. You know, something that's very command and control, maybe decisions and prioritization is made quickly, but, um, you know, maybe you're only relying on a few people and maybe those few people aren't always correct. Whereas if you're doing a very democratic approach where there's like wide you know, buckets of folks that need to be consulted and, and have their feedback incorporated and so on and so forth, that can be very, very time consuming and um, very slow and you can lose time to market opportunities. So, you know, again, I think a theme here is, you know, whether it's consensus or tools or, you know, how you're doing, you know, at, you know, how you're doing agile, um, you know, how you're managing, how you're managing people. There's no one size fits all. And the CIO really needs to do a lot of, you know, thinking and exploring and be very curious about how all those things work in an organization, both within the IT organization and um, outside the IT organization and figure out what of those things are contributing to velocity and, and quality and delivery and which of those things are creating, um, you know, creating barrier conditions that they need to they need to figure out. And I'd, I'd do a plus one then is that these days, since most CIOs and their organizations are very dependent on vendors, you know, as we move more things to the cloud, that, yeah, it's a good idea to understand um, some cultural aspects of the vendors you're engaging with as well, because that can, can have an impact. Yeah, quite a lot to balance. I did want to ask you that on the uh, human resources front for IT organizations and for companies uh, as a whole, in addition to salary parity, what would you like to see IT organizations doing to promote women in leadership positions and also support them strongly in direct contributor positions? So um, I tend to be a pragmatist. And, and one thing I will say is that until there's more women in leadership positions, there won't be more women in leadership positions. And companies need to um, you know, they need to be turning that flywheel much better than, than they are. And, you know, one of the things that has been disturbing to me recently, and I've been talking to colleagues about, is that you'll, you'll, you'll hear organizations say, well, you know, there's plenty of women in IT. And I'm like, okay, let's talk about the roles that women have in your organization. And there's still a tendency, you know, you'll see um, you know, women in HR roles or project management roles, and not so much, if you will, in, you know, the more technical roles or senior roles or, or, or leadership roles. And that's a bit, you know, I will freely admit that that's anecdata. Um, but, you know, when I look at studies on these things, that's, that does tend to be what, what you see. Sure. And I, I think that, I think there's a long game and a short game here. The short game is that 
you need to be looking at what every, you know, what everybody wants their career trajectory to be. And you need to be looking at the organization and actively saying, what women do I have at various level of the or various levels of the organization who I need to be reskilling, upskilling, you know, focusing on so I can get to a, a better place because you know the data clearly states that the more more diverse organizations are, the better off they they tend to be. And that's the short game. That needs that's something that organizations should be actively doing now and a good chief human resources resource officer and, and the like should be able to, to help organizations with that. And then the long game um, that companies need to be doing is they need to be they need to be working with schools, you know, I would say even down to the primary and the middle school level, you know, on the on the pipeline. You know, there isn't going to be some some silver bullet in the next few years and all of a sudden, you know, we're going to have turned the corner in the amount of women graduating from universities with with you know stem or equivalent degrees you know there needs to be a lot of change in our educational system to get the pipeline to a far far better place and it's interesting when people talk to me as a women a woman they're like well you know are you doing this because you're a woman or like why are you why is this a thing for you and i'll say well here's the reason it's a thing for me is that everybody is screaming for talent, everybody you know needs developers and and other you know technologists and you know you know IT security folks and you know everything else. And there's a dearth of talent. Why would you not be focusing on the entire set of the population, you know, men and women, um, and making sure that companies are going to you know be making iterations towards a better place and having enough talent available i mean at the end of the day you can you know it comes down to the math and the types of expertise that's needed in the 21st century versus the type of expertise that we have available yeah absolutely we may have touched on it already but what would you say are the most valuable things that cios and their staff should be working on in 2019 they should be working on figuring out what's most Im- important and prioritizing. I have, the, the problem I see, it's so pervasive. Every organization that I talk to is that they don't have priorities because they're prioritizing too much. So in my mind, they should be working much more specifically and spending more time on what are really the most important things we need to be working on. And it's not a hundred things and it's not 50 things. It's less than 10 things. In fact, I'd argue, some would argue that it should only be like three, three or five. And so that's num- that's number one. They have got to get that figured out. And then the other thing is that, you know, everybody, I don't think this is an exaggeration. Everybody is somewhere on the quote unquote journey, journey to the cloud, which can mean a lot of different things and has a lot of um, different bits and pieces to it. Um, but I think that organizations need to be doing a better job of not just figuring out technically where they should be with their um, port, you know, portfolios, but they need to be changing, if you will, working on changing the DNA of the IT organization and sort of the adjacent you know, parts of a given company or organization to be prepared for what that means. I mean, just take things like IT service management processes. IT service management processes get completely 
you know, need to be completely changed when you're talking about uh, moving to, you know, software as a service or, you know, storage in the cloud or analytics in the cloud or, or whatever. And what I see a lot happening is everybody gets enamored of the technology and they start down this techno technical journey, but the IT organization is not very well prepared in terms of their processes or their, or their talent. And so they, they struggle. The last thing I'd say about this is that a, a leading indicator that an organization may not be thinking about cloud in the right way is when the leading question or the only question is how much money are we going to save? Or, you know, how many fewer FTE are we going to are we going to need? Absolutely. It, it certainly is a question that needs to be you know asked and answered, but it's one among many, many, one among many, many questions. Um, you know, I've had people ask me many times, well, how much do you think we can save if we go to, you know, XYZ cloud-based solution? And I'm like, well, and I will be very honest with people. I'm like, I can't answer that question until we have a lot more conversation and a lot more analysis, you know, but let me, let's talk about sort of a full suite of questions that might be helpful to be asked and answered, you know, with that one among them. Yeah, uh, glad to hear your focus on that. Uh, some of the work that we're doing at GigOM is actually looking at, you know, what are the real costs of the various cloud technologies? And, you know, as, as I think implied in, in your statement, a big part of it is perhaps as you move to the cloud, you're gonna change the nature of your work. And that might be a fantastic business opportunity that saves no money at all. It may be that you're just going to do much more uh, than you were doing. And in a lot of cases, you will then just have to kind of change the nature of the work, but it's not about less. Right, exactly. I mean, the, the question, you know, should be around, okay, not what's the amount of money we should be spending on IT. It's, you know, what sort of, what sort of you know, delivery and quality and, and, and value should we be getting out of our IT you know, investments from, um, you know, particularly, again, IT talent. I mean, IT talent tends to be, you know, in most organizations between, you know, 60 or 80% of, you know, the overall budget. I mean, compensation is, is you know, huge chunks of the, of the, of, of the budget. Um, you know, people want to change to these new constructs, but, you know, what are they doing about reskilling or upskilling their, upskilling their organization you know in my opinion um layoffs are a failure of 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 leadership not everybody would probably agree with me but um that's that's where that i feel pretty strongly about that well great uh why don't we leave it there uh i want to thank you uh quite a bit for uh this discussion i think we've uh had you've given a lot of great advice for uh it leaders and thank you for speaking with me if you enjoyed this episode of CIO Speaks, please check out the other episodes in this series. Optimizing network interconnection in the changing cloud landscape is the focus of a new report called Connecting Clouds that Steve wrote for GigaOM Research. To find out more about how IT leaders and organizations are overcoming challenges in the evolving cloud era, download the single report or subscribe to GigaOM Research for future forward advice on data-driven technologies, operations, business strategies.